We're going to discuss tonight the question of the kashrus of Turkey. In a previous year, we discussed the, the, the halachic questions in, that eating turkey specifically on Thanksgiving entails. We'll discuss this year a little bit about the basic kashrus of Turkey all year round. This is a topic that's been much discussed. There have been numerous chuvas that discuss it. And the, the problem with, with, with uh, deciphering much of the literature is that there is a tremendous confusion about terminology. Many of the chuvas of Akronim mention birds by describing them. It's not clear what bird they're referring to. Sometimes they use Yiddish or Russian or European words to describe the birds. It's not clear what bird, the, what bird those words refer to. It's not clear whether the, the different names for birds that appear in different chuvas refer to the same bird or a different bird. So it, it's often difficult to know what the, what the chuvas are actually referring to. But nevertheless, we, we're going to see tonight several chuvas about birds, which may or may not refer to turkeys, and the, we'll get at least a flavor of some of the underlying issues of the discussion of whether turkey is kosher. Of course, we know that turkey is generally accepted today as kosher. It's actually one of the very few birds that we eat today. Chicken, by far, obviously, is the dominant bird in most of the Jewish world. Turkey is uh, clo- Turkey is probably uh, probably the second. We eat duck occasionally, maybe goose in some places. But you know, after chicken, turkey is the turkey is the bird most often eaten by by those who keep kosher. But it's a surprisingly murky. It's a surprisingly difficult question: how turkey came to be considered as kosher, why turkey came to be considered as kosher. There were holdouts. There are and were holdouts who did not consider turkey kosher. So we're going to try to not do anything like a comprehensive survey of the literature, but we're going to try to consider at least some of the, get a flavor for some of the issues that were discussed in the context of Turkey. Yes, Simcha? Simcha. I, I like Turkey. Simcha likes Turkey. Actually, you don't. So the, so the, in, in order to understand the halachic discussion, we have to, we, we have to understand a little bit about the kashras of birds. So a brief introduction is in order. There are five different systems, basically, by which five different methods or procedures we can use to determine whether birds are kosher. The first and most authoritative is certainly to look in the Torah. The Torah tells you which birds are non-kosher and the rest are kosher. Unlike, unlike with animals and fish, where the Torah gives simanim, the famous uh, chewing its cud and split hooves for animals, and the, fa- and the fins and scales for the fish, Birds, the Torah does not give simanim. The Torah lists 24 birds that are tame, the rest are tahar. That is by far the most authoritative, direct, most way to determine which birds are kosher or not kosher. Why don't we use that procedure? We don't use it for the very simple reason that we don't know what many of those birds are. The 24 birds the Torah says are not kosher, we don't know what they are. As long as there's even one that we don't know what it is, we, 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 how can we eat any bird? Maybe it's that one bird that we don't know what it is. Unless we're sure it's a kosher bird, how can we eat it? So certainly method number one for determining a kosher bird is simply reading the list of 24 and determining that your bird is not one of those 24. In practice, we don't really do that because we don't know what those 24 birds are. Method number two involves simanum, signs. I just said that there are no simanum in the Torah for kosher birds and, and non-kosher birds. That's true. There are none in Torah Shabbat The Gemara, however, does give us several simanim, four simanim, three or four simanim, which are brought in Shulchan Aruch, whether the bird is a predator, whether it's dores v'ochel, 
how many toes it has, whether it has a crap, whether it has a gizzard, whether it's uh, the, the, the anatomical structure of its kirkavan. The, so there are, there are a handful, there are about four simonim that the Gemara and the Post can talk about. However, we generally don't rely on those simonim, at least not by themselves. That, that, that's not the, the main method we use today for determining whether birds are kosher or not. That's important, that comes up in many of the chuvas. We'll see it tonight mentioned in various chuvas. That's, the, that's method number two. After actually knowing what the 24 species named in the Torah are, method number two is the simanim. Method number three is Masera. The Shulchan Aruch Paskins, we Paskin, Of is not Nechal unless you have a Masera. You're required to have a Masera as to whether a bird is kosher or treif. Masera simply means tradition, a reliable tradition going back to earlier generations about whether a bird is kosher or non-kosher. We require that a bird have a Masera before we eat it. Shulchan Aruch says, Of has no Simanim in Torah. Nevertheless, there are Simanim the Chazal gave us. Lahalacha, though, the Shulchan Aruch says that even a bird that has the three, the three positive Simanim, we don't eat it because we're never sure about the, the fourth Simanim. It's a negative Simanim. Three positive Simanim, the right kind of toes, the Korkavan, the Zefek. But the, the negative Simanim is it can't be Dores. It can't, different shots and what that means exactly. It can't seize and grab other animals as, as prey and eat them. So we're never sure, just because you don't see the animal be derased, maybe it does it sometimes when you're not looking. So we're never really sure. So the halacha is we require a masara. That is number three. We require a masara that a certain bird is kosher. Those are the three, men, those are the three systems mentioned in the, in the Chumash and in the early poskim. There are two more methods which are often invoked, the four and five, Four is hybridization. The Gemara says that Tame birds and Tahar birds, when we say Tame and Tahar in this context, throughout, throughout our discussion tonight, we mean kosher and non-kosher birds. Tame and Tahar birds do not interbreed. If you, if you have a bird that readily mates with another bird that we know is kosher, we can assume that the former is kosher as well. In principle, at least, there, there's such a rule. How much we rely on that, again, that's a question, but in principle, at least, that's a rule many posts can discuss. We'll, we'll see a discussion of it tonight. Method number five is used very often, and it's the perhaps le- not well-defined, but it's one of the most commonly invoked, and that is simply the argument that if I see a kind of bird that's not entirely familiar, I say, it's basically a chicken. It's, uh, the, the feet are a little bit longer, it's a little bit heavier, it's, the neck is shorter. Basically, it's a chicken. If I can look at a bird and say, this looks pretty much like a variation on a theme, it looks pretty much like some other bird that I already know about, we can simply decide it's just a slightly different looking version of the other bird. So if, if we can take a new bird and say, well, again, it's a little bit different, but it's basically just a variation on an old theme, we can sometimes say that mutter also because it's not really a new bird, it's just a variation of an old bird. And this really takes us to one of the most difficult aspects of our, of our old topic, which is science, science, taxonomy. We have all kinds of notions of species and, and a genus and a family and an order and so on. We have very technical, fussy definitions for, for, for all these different things. Halacha, unfortunately, doesn't give us anything like a, a regular, comprehensive, systematic discussion of species. The notion of species is relevant for various halachas. Aside from our discussion tonight of the kashras of birds, it's relevant largely in kalayim. Kalayim, the, fun, the issue is fundamentally defined as mixing species together mating animals together of different species, having them pull a wagon together, planting them together. 
The question is, what's called two different species? Halacha does not use the same definition of species that modern science does. However, halacha nowhere really defines exactly what a species is. Halacha gives us examples of certain pairs of plants and animals which are considered the same species or different species. It gives us certain heuristics, certain rules for determining it. But again, it's, it's a very difficult topic because we don't have a completely well-defined uh, system of what is considered the same species and what is different species. But this is also the fifth method of determining whether a, a bird is kosher or not. If it looks a little bit like a kosher bird, looks a lot like a kosher bird, we'll sometimes say it's basically the same bird as the one we know and love. It's just a slightly different version of it. They've had various controversies in the 20th century as well, the Breckel hen, the 21st century, different types of animals, which are sort of chicken-like, but they're a little bit different from standard chickens. Some postcom said they're chickens, they're the same ones, they're, they're just variations on a theme. So these are the five sets of procedures that postcom used for determining, in principle, or and in practice, many of them, whether a bird is kosher or not. Is it one of the 24 in the Torah, which is, again, not practically used very often, number one. Number two, the four simanim, is it dores, how does it, uh, how does it eat, how does it feed, the other three positive simanim, the nature of its toes. We're not going to get into all the details of the simanim, but how its toes are arranged, the, how the, the, the korkivan, the zefek, different anatomical features. Method number three is mesora. Method number four is hybridization, does it mate with kosher birds, known kosher birds. Method number five simply to look at the anatomical structure of the bird overall and say it resembles a known kosher bird, that sometimes is enough to say the new bird is just a version of the old bird. So with that background, we can turn to a series of chuvos on kosher birds. The last three we're going to do are 19th century chuvos. As Rabbi Dr. Zivotovsky points out, for some reason throughout the 18th and 19th century, 20th century as well, is when we have all these bird controversies. There, weren't as, there wasn't as much discussion of this in earlier generations. Not sure why. But the first chuva we're going to begin with is actually a 13th century, 13th or 14th century chuva that is a chuva of the rush. It is not about turkeys. It is actually about storks. The chuva is about a bird called the chasida, which actually is listed, I believe, as one of the 24 non-kosher birds in the Torah. The question is, what did... What did they mean by Hasidah in the time of the, in the time of the uh, time of the rush in medieval Europe? The rush talks about a bird that they used to call Hasidah in in Europe. He it, he apparently is talking about a stork. Hasidah in modern Hebrew means stork as well. And in particular, the rush says that the the Loazim, the, the French speakers, call it Sikunya, which is some version of the Latinate Siconia, which is the which is basically the stork family. It's a variety. Storks are a whole family of birds, or seven different species. It's a, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of uh, whole bunch of storks out there. You know, I, I don't I don't really understand the details of all the scientific classifications, but there are uh, there's a whole family. They belong to the order the, the family of the Siconi Siconiidae. They belong to the order of Siconiformes. And anyway, Siconia is stork for, for stork and simple. Uh, it's a genus, Siconia is a genus of birds, there are uh, seven species, seven living species of these birds. So basically, the Rush says they call this bird Hasida and Sikunia, which clearly means that they were dealing with some type of stork. The question was, is the stork a kosher bird or not? I don't think stork is generally eaten by observant Jews today, but in the time of the Rush, it was actually a machlokis. The Rush says that in Sfarad and Ashkenaz, they do not eat uh, stork. He refers to it as a bird that nests on houses. 
think it's a wading bird, generally, storks. I'm not sure about this nesting on houses thing. But uh, when he describes the, the habits and the, the habits of the storks, he says it eats frogs. That is another thing consistent with storks. Uh, storks eat, are carnivorous. They eat all kinds of uh, small animals. But frogs is right up there in their diet. It's pretty clear he's talking about a stork. So he says in, in France and Germany, we do not eat storks. However, there were certain places that did eat storks. There were certain Jews who ate storks, he says. They say, Oftar nechel b'mesaris. Halacha is, you have a masara, you eat it. We have a masara. We have a masara that stork is kosher. How can you argue with that? Says the Rosh, I do argue with that. Tov lachka rachar kabbalasam. We should really investigate how reliable their kabbalah is. Maybe somebody just decided that he knew how to identify the simanim. We don't really rely on that. We don't rely on the positive simanim, because maybe it's darais, maybe it has the negative simon as well, which is hard to prove. Also, he says, the Chazal tell us there are many birds that have some simanim and not others. Basically, the Rush says, we don't rely on simanim. This is not lahalacha. And even though they claim they have a Masara, maybe their Masara is, uh, is, is just an extension of, of their investigation of simanim. We shouldn't be so quick to just, to just accept uh, claims of Masara. Therefore, he says, we don't rely on simanim. I'm not convinced they have an authentic Masara. He goes on, he says, Chazal themselves talked about cases where they used to eat birds, they thought they were tar, and then they found, uh, they found that it was Usher because it was Daris. Certainly today the Rush says, we don't, uh, we, don't, we don't rely on Badika, he says. We don't rely on Simana. What about relying on their Masara, he says? We have a counter Masara, he says. We have a Masara from the Chachme Ashkenaz. The Rush is very, very proud of the Chachme Ashkenaz. He says, Chachme Ashkenaz, the Torah is Yerushalayim, a famous line of the Rush. The Torah is considered uh, the inheritance, the patrimony of the Chachme Ashkenaz from their, from their ancestors. Mimosa Chorban, going all the way back to the Chorban, the Rush says, we are the proud bearers of an ancient tradition. Similarly, in Sarfas, he says, the, the, he says that the Kabbalahs we have in the, in, in the glorious Torah centers of, I'm not sure where the Rush was writing to here, but he says the, the Messiahs that we have in France and Germany, the, the, the Kehilos of the Balitosis, he says, are far more reliable than the, far more authoritative than, than whatever land you're talking about, whatever culture you're talking about. And yes, if you have a Masaurus, he says, yes, if we wouldn't have a counter Masaurus, there, there, there is a halakhic basis for relying on the Masaurus of somebody else. This is what uh, I think Rabbi Zivotovsky might be involved in this. They have a, a Masaurus dinner where, where, where they want to preserve Masaurus, so they get together all the exotic animals that, animals, fish, birds, that people eat somewhere in the world, they eat them in order to do it uh, with, with, with full uh, pomp and ceremony to preserve the Masara. They should have a uh, public maintenance of the Masara. So th- this is the halacha. In principle, this is the halacha, that if one community has a Masara, another community has no Masara, they can rely on the Masara of the first community. Nevertheless, there are those who challenge this dinner. There are those who say that in many cases we have the equivalent of a counter Masara, not to eat these, uh, these other foods. That's what the Rush says here. The Rush says that if you simply don't know, you've never seen a stork before. You live somewhere where there are no storks. You live in, you live in a country that's never seen a stork. You live in Antarctica. I don't think they have storks up there. You come down. You, seen, you see a stork for the first time in your life when you visit New York. You ask your friend in New York, what is this? He tells you it's a stork. You ask, is it kosher? He says, yes, we have a masara. Then you can eat it because if they have a masara and you have no masara one way or another, you can rely on another Jew's masara. However, he says, here in Ashkenaz and in Sarfas, he says, we have an established Masara not to consider storks kosher. Our Masara is better than your Masara, he says, better than that other Masara. We are, at, we, Torah is Yerushalayim, he says, and therefore, 
the Rush says that uh, if you have an oath that's from a kubal, we will not rely on somebody else's Masara. And the Rush, therefore, was not impressed by the stork eating culture. He says the Iker Masara is that of, of Tsarfas and Ashkenaz, that the stork is non kosher and should not be eaten. Again, stork is not really a big issue. I don't think there's a lot of halachic discussion about it. I'm not sure how much there is in later poskim. But this is one of the earliest chuvas of which I'm aware, uh, one of the earliest discussions about a bird regarding which there was some controversy, conflicting mesoris, some doubt about the simonim. The rush took a strict view and said he was not impressed by their mesorah, he wasn't convinced it was a reliable mesorah, his mesorah was better, and therefore the rush was not willing to allow the consumption of storks. In later, as we mentioned, the, most of the discussion about Mesoras and about different birds, most of, the Mesa, most of the discussions occur in the 18th, 19th, and later 20th century. Discussions revolve around, the discussions concerned a variety of birds. It is difficult to know what birds they were discussing because they don't use scientific terminology for them. They use descriptive terminology. They describe what they look like. They often describe them relative to birds they knew like the, the chuvas we're going to do tonight, some of them deal with, there were geese, they say, which are bigger than our geese and have longer necks, and they have a bump on their beak, and they have humps over here. So the, it's difficult to know. Sometimes they do give European words, Russian words, Yiddish words, Pearlhanner, Indic, Tarnagal Hodu. Sometimes they refer to the birds and where they came from. There's a tremendous amount of confusion about where the turkey actually came from. We believe today that it came from the New World. It came shortly after Europeans made it to the New World. They brought back turkeys from Mexico, I think, from South America. The Akronim, some of them seem to have assumed turkeys came from India. That's why the turkey today, even today in modern Hebrew, as well as rabbinic literature, is called Tarnagal Hodu, the chicken of India. So the, the, many of the Akronim refer to the, the Indic, or the Tarnagal Indic, the, the Indian chicken. Some of, them is, some of them did know that the bird came from America. Some of them... So it's, very, it's hard to know many of these chuvas which bird they were referring to, it's hard to know uh, how much of their arguments carry over to Turkey. But Turkey in particular is something of a conundrum, as Rabbi Zivotovsky notes, that Turkey, it was widely accepted for centuries, apparently, to eat Turkey. It's not clear when this began. It's not clear when Jews first began eating Turkey. It's not clear which, which postkin were involved in signing off on eating Turkey. By the 19th century, the rest of the Jews we're going to do tonight are from the 19th century. By the 19th century... Turkey was, it was pretty well established that Turkey was kosher. There was no single compelling reason why. Zivotovsky lists about ten different possible reasons, none of which he notes are entirely compelling. But nevertheless, many postkims stated as a Dover Pashut that uh, we know the Minigas to eat Turkey. And that's still the situation today. There are still some people, the Kamenetsky family, there are still some people who don't eat Turkey. But again, by and large, the major cashless organizations, the major Gedolia Poskim, allow Turkey. Although again, it rests on a somewhat dubious foundation. It's not clear exactly why. But uh, for example, the Sholemeshev, Yosef Sholemethensen, he has a tshuva not primarily about Turkey, primarily about some other kind of bird. But in passing, he was, he was very, very critical of some, some other abadim who were trying to introduce some stringencies about certain types of birds. He thought they were being way too strict, and they, and, and they were. He thought they were not. Uh, he thought they were not. Uh, he, th- he thought they were not uh, applying the halachic process correctly. In, in the course of his discussion, he writes in his tshuva. He writes, "Vani Shoah, Let me ask you a question. He says, "Hey, Chacham Hayinduk, Shabbat America. 
How can we eat the Induk, which he likely means turkey, which comes from America, he says. Again, the, the, the standard way that we, we allow birds to be eaten is we require to have a Maseris, he says. Maseris is kind of a, it has to, it has to start from somewhere, but, but Maseris, by definition, is a chain. It's a chain, of, it's a chain of transmission of the kashra status of the bird. Any bird that comes from America, he says, cannot, by definition, he says, cannot have a real Masera. There were no Jews in America before several hundred years ago, he says. So he, he means. So then, what's the Masera in Turkey? How did they get a Masera in Turkey, he says. Turkey has no Masera. Nevertheless, throughout Jewish civilization, he says, throughout the Jewish diaspora, we eat Turkey. So he was proving that his, his rabbinic opponents were being too strict in their insistence on a Masera. What exactly his position was, Rav Nathanson, why he felt Turkey was eaten, not entirely clear. So, with this general introduction, let's turn now to two specific tshuvas that both either directly or indirectly address Turkey. One is a fairly strict tshuva by Rav Shlomo Kluger, one of the outstanding postkim Russian of the 19th century. The other is by Rav Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the Nitziv, also one of the famous postkim in Lithuania, one of the famous Gedele Torah of the yeshiva world, so to speak, who has a rather more lenient approach towards some of these birds, in Turkey in particular. Roshlom Kluger writes as follows. He was asked about birds that come from America, Ophosabam in America. Not entirely clear what species he had in mind, but he refers to birds that come from America. Turkey, maybe not Turkey, maybe something else. He was asked about the kashras of birds from America. Hinei ani ostrom, he says, I prohibit the consumption of such birds, I will not sign on, I will not join those who are matir. I wrote a tshuva on this earlier, he says, and at great length. This tshuva we're, that we're studying tonight is from his Sefer Ha'elef Lechashlomo, which is one of his collections of tshuvas. That's a collection of relatively short, punchy tshuvas. His Tuv Tam Vadas is one of his much longer works with longer, more complex tshuvas. But here, in his brief tshuva, he, he, he references his earlier tshuva in Tuv Tam Vadas, Yisod Dvara, he says, my basic point in my stringent tshuva, we paskin that we don't rely on simanim, we require mesara. And just like Reb Nathanson said, we don't have mesara on New World birds. How do we have mesara? There were no Jews there. Before, uh, relatively recently, he says. Now, he says, you told me that the matirim, those who allow the New World birds from America, they say they have a mesara. They have a mesara on these birds that they're kosher. Says of Shlomo Kluger, hevel yiftepim. That is nonsense, he says. Why is it nonsense? Two reasons, he says. First of all, let's assume for a minute that they have a Masara. Let's put aside what I said, there's no Masara. Let's assume they have a Masara. However, he says, there are two opinions in the Shulchan Aruch. If, I said before that, I said before that if you're in a place that has no Masara, that you're allowed to rely on someone else's Masara, there are actually two opinions in the Shulchan Aruch about this. The Shulchan Aruch says, discussing uh, places with, with different Masaras, he says, Again, everyone agrees that if you have a counter-Masara that it's usur, you don't set aside your Masara in favor of someone else's Masara, assuming that they're equal, certainly. However, if you have no Masara, if other places have no Masara, the Shulchan Aruch says, you are, the first opinion says you are, uh, someone else has a Masara that it's mutter. Can you rely on their Masara? Yesh misha oser. Some say you cannot rely on their Masara. Yesh misha matir. Some say you may rely on their Masara. Says the Shulchan Aruch, Yesh lachosh ledivrei ha'oser. We should be stringent there. We should say that you should not, even if you have no Masara, you're neutral, you should nevertheless follow the opinion 
of those who say that it is usher, you know, of those who say that you're not allowed to rely on the Masara of the Matirim if you don't have a clear Masara. You should not rely on someone else's Masara. Now the Shach, the Shach says it's actually not a Machlokas. The Shach says that the Beis Yosef said this was a Machlokas because he saw a Tshuva of the Rashba and a Tshuva of the Rush, and he thought they were arguing, Apsaka the Rashba, Apsaka the Rush, he thought they were arguing, says the Shach, it's not actually a Machlokas. The Shach explains that it really depends. If the if, if you're neutral and someone else has a Masara, you're allowed to rely on it. The Rashbu said you can't defer to someone else's Masara is talking about a place where you have, like the, like the Chuva the Rush we said earlier, where you have a, you have a negative Masara, Masara not to eat it. So according to the Shach, you're allowed to rely on someone else's Masara as long as you're neutral. It's only if you have a negative Masara that you cannot defer to someone else's positive Masara. According to the Shulchan Aruch, there are two opinions. And, uh, and, the, and, the, and even, even apparently if there's no negative Masara, you just have zero Masara, not positive or negative, you just have the absence of a Masara. Even in that case, the Shulchan Aruch says, you are not allowed to rely on someone else's Masara. Says Rosh Kluger, we follow the Shulchan Aruch, not the Shach. Says Rosh Kluger, the, even if they claim in America they have a Masara. We certainly in Europe, we have no Masara, we had no Masara about these New World birds. The Shulchan Aruch says, even if you have a neutral Masara, no Masara, you should not defer to the lenient Masara if it's not your personal Masara. The Shach is wrong, he says. The, 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 he says that the Shach is wrong, the Shulchan Aruch, the Shul, since the Shulchan Aruch implies otherwise, we defer to the Shulchan Aruch. And Tanisha Daraisi says, so therefore, Roy Lachach Divrei Beis Yosef, Lavush also, who outnumber the Shach, the Shulchan Aruch and the Lavush against the Shach. And therefore, even if in America they have a Masara, since we in Europe don't have a Masara, we should not be eating turkey, or whatever this new world bird is. Furthermore, he says, furthermore, he says that the, that which we say, that, that, that we can rely on someone else's Masara, that's if it's possible they have a real Masara. If they have, if it's an ancient Jewish community, they have a Masara that goes back to the Gemara, or to the Gaonim, to the ancient authoritative Jewish sources, that, uh, and in cases where Jewish communities, people were observant, and they were kshirim, and reliable, he says, he says, here, in America, he says, America was settled only 100 years ago, by Jews, he says, the Jews, the Jews came to America only about a century ago, this tshuva was probably written in the mid-19th century, so he's telling us that Jews, uh, Jews came in the mid-18th century, people always like to find, you know, there was you know, some Jew on the Mayflower or something, but, you know, real Jewish communities, he says, didn't appear in, in the U.S., in America, until sometime in the mid-18th century, he says. Before that, there was no Jewish community. How did they have a Masara? He says, what kind of Masara is this? The indigenous peoples in America certainly had no Masara about the kashras of birds. So where on earth are you getting this Masara from in America? Furthermore, he says, he takes a general swipe at America in general, he says, at least with regard to Jewish settlement in America. He says, it's well known, it's known, he says. Who, who, who emigrated to America? Kalmare Nefesh, those who were uh, bitter of soul, people who, were, people who were escaping creditors, he says, and Kale Hadas Ruban, people who are lightweight and are not, uh, not serious, reliable people, he says. America is a motley crew of misfits, basically, at least the Jewish em- immigrants to America of that time, he says. We can't rely on their claims they have a Masara, and Lakuli Almut certainly can't rely on such a Masara. And Lamayat Plukta Adif, there's a machlokus in the Rishonim, whether maybe, and the Achronim, Shulchan Aruch, and Shach, whether you can defer to someone else's Masorah, all right, when they have a reliable, solid Masorah of, of, of an authentic, serious Jewish community, something say you can defer to that. 
But if, if, if all they have is uh, the misfits and the, the misfits of Europe, he says, certainly we, then we should not defer to such a Masera. L'chein, he says, Bavadai Asurim, New World Birds are Asur. Mishle Yishmele anyone who does not agree, Asid Litines Adin, will have to answer to God. Maybe they just came from a place who did have a Masora, and they kept their Masora. So Simcha is saying maybe the Masora came from somewhere else. The problem is, these birds were native, as Roshul Kluger notes, these birds were native to the United States, or to somewhere in America, North or South America. So nobody could have had a Masora, because uh, these birds didn't exist in Europe. In the time of the Gemara, nobody saw a turkey. In the time of the Gonim, nobody saw a turkey. In the time of the Rishonim, nobody saw a turkey. So how can a Masora start like that? Uh, the definition of Masora means it goes back to, uh, I don't know how far back it has to go, but he says Shast or the Gonim. You can't have a Masora that's 300 years old, because how does it get started, he says. Like the Russians, if it got started by somebody being Bodik Simonim, that's not a Masora. They, we, we don't rely on Simonim. So a Masora based on Simonim can't be better than Simonim. Therefore, Oshulon Kluger rejects out of hand the possibility of the Masora. He says, even if there would be a Masora, since we don't have that Masora, we can't rely on it. They don't have a real Masora. We shouldn't be relying on it, he says. And therefore, New World birds are usur. Anybody who eats New World birds, usid litinet sadin, will be punished by HaKadosh Baruch. Again, it's not entirely clear which New World birds he had in mind, but uh, it certainly could be, including Turkey. He did not believe that New World birds could be eaten. The Nativ, as we mentioned, has a somewhat more lenient approach to this question. His primary tshuva was not actually about uh, New World birds. It's not sure where these birds came from. His primary question, the, his tshuva was written in Tafresh Mem Dalad, uh, in, uh, in uh, Tafresh Mem Dalad, which is 1884. And he was asked about certain geese. The geese were large, and they, were, they differed from the standard European geese, in, also in that they had long necks, and they had gavshushis shalachartam, they had some kind of bump on the beaks. And so they have these new geese. And somehow these new geese made it to Europe. People began to eat them. They assumed they were regular geese. Now there are, there's a controversy about it. The, the people started to say, maybe these are not geese. Maybe they're a different species. And, and, and who knows if they're kosher. And we have to have, if they're a new species, we have to have a masara. We don't have a masara. So he says, what do we do? So how, how do we decide whether these new geese are kosher or not? Says in its introduction, before I get into the halacha of this, he says, he says something very, very litfish. We find this, in a, this, is a, this is an attitude we find in a certain strain of Ashkenazi postkim. He says, Ashkenazi achronim, kashahu halacha brura. It's hard, he said, for me to deal with questions that don't have clear halachas, he says. You know, Yudah talks like this a lot. I can answer you questions if you, if you bring a raya from a gemara, finding a press, and I can do that, he says, but these types of things, Masoras and Simanim, it's, it's, all, it's all murky, he's saying, I can't, you know, I can't, you know, it's hard for me to say Lumdus and Svaris from the Gemara, he says, these things are not well-defined, species, species and Simanim, he says, how am I supposed to answer this question, it's, how am I supposed to prove to you from the Gemara whether these long-necked geese are kosher or not, the, 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 there's very little, very little clear statement in the Talmud about this, he says, he says, it, it's very hard for me to Nabi Huda frequently uses language like this when they ask him questions about Rabbi Huda Chassid or about things that don't have strong basis in the Talmud, even if they're part of Jewish culture, he says, it's very hard for me to answer questions about things that don't have solid precedent in the Talmud. Other posts can say, you know, it's, it's all Judaism, it's, it's living Judaism, and it's my job as a Talmud Chacham to answer, but certain Ashkenazi posts can often bemoan 
They, they don't like being asked questions where they can't find a, a solid, clear precedent in the Gemara. This type of question, he says, what am I going to find you? I'm going to find you some, a Gemara about these type of geese, he says. How can I really answer this question? So he says, but however, you, you really want me to answer you, so I'm going, to try to, uh, I'm going to try to say something, I'm going to try to analyze the question regardless. I, hopefully Hashem will help me that I won't make a mistake. He says, now the truth is, he says, had you asked me this question ab initio, when they first began to import these geese, these, new, these newfangled geese to our area, he says. He says, if you would have asked me back then, can we start eating these new geese, I would not have been so quick to be matter. And he goes on for a while explaining why he's not going to be matter. He's going to explain that now that the geese are already here and people have been eating them, I'm more lenient. And this is the same issue basically as turkey, that a strong case could be made that the first time anybody saw a turkey, they should have prohibited it, but once they've been eating it, we're much less quick to go uh, reverse the practice. So he takes this position regarding these uh, new, new style geese. He says, had they come originally in a vacuum, Jews were not eating them yet, they wanted to know, we just found a new sort of geese, can we eat it, he says. I would, I would say I'm not convinced. Why, he says? So the first question he deals with is method number five we mentioned earlier. If, if, if you see a slightly different type of bird, if it, if it closely resembles an existing bird, maybe we can just say it's basically the same bird. It looks a little different, but it's basically the same bird with variations. Says in its sieve, these new geese are too different, are, are, are too much, uh, they're, they're too different from the old geese. Why? They're bigger, their dimensions are different, he says. Now you try to argue that being big is not different, it's just scale, he says. No, he says it's true, there is a Gemara that says that if it has a long, uh, long beak, it's, a, it's the same thing, it's just a longer beak, he says. That's not the same thing. One limb is longer, he says, that you know, could be the same species. But if everything is bigger, well, the, the, entire, the, the size of the entire bird is, has completely different dimensions, he says, that uh, these geese, all their limbs, and the entire body plan of these geese is larger than the old geese, he says. He says size is definitely a distinguishing factor. When we discuss the definition of species in halacha, he says size certainly is a factor. He brings a raya from a gemara. The gemara talks about, uh, the gemara talks about mules, the animals that were born from male horses and female donkeys, or vice versa. It says we, we look at the sizes of the animals, of, of different parts of the animal, and we do determine which one it is, whether, whether it's primarily a, a horse or a, or a donkey. So he says, we look at size. Size is a, is, is a, is a differentiator, he says. He says, it's, there were some Gaonim who said that there were certain chickens, he says. They had larger chickens than the ones we were used to, and there was apparently a precedent of, of, of Gaonim, of certain Gedoli Torah, who allowed the new chickens... Uh, even though they were larger. As I mentioned earlier, there have, been, there have been great arguments in our time as well about the breckel hens and other types of chickens, which were look different. Uh, they're called chickens, but they look different from regular chickens. So in his time, there was apparently a discussion about this as well. They had a larger version of chickens than the standard ones, and some go and more mature them, he says. So you see, even though they were larger, it didn't bother them. He said, well, there, first of all, they had simonim as well. They had the three positive simonim of Tara. Also, he says, they had some kind of misery, he says. They, they had a certain zakein, a certain reliable uh, witness who said that in some other country they used to eat those chickens, he says. <coughs> so in that case, he says, yes, even though the chickens were all different from the standard ones, they did have the simanim, and all three, all three positive simanim, and they had some sort of a misery. However, in our case, he says, the new geese, he says, they don't have a zefek, the missing one of the simanim, 
We don't actually know of any place where Jews used to eat them until they came to our part of Europe, he says, some you know, relatively recently, and we started eating them. We don't know of any other Jewish community that ate them. The, they brought them in from who knows where, and people started eating them. We don't have any ancient tradition of Jews eating these birds. So without a Masara, just to assume that they look more or less the same as geese, even though there are some differences, who said? Maybe they're not regular geese. Maybe they're a different species of geese. They're not kosher, he says. Furthermore, he says, they're, they're different in three ways, he says. First size, we mentioned. Also, they have long necks, meaning I guess that the necks are, are, are out of proportion to the, the rest of the geese, that the, besides the whole goose being bigger, it also has a longer neck relative to its body, I suppose he means. Also, it has this thing about the, on the beak, it has some kind of hump or some kind of uh, bump on the beak, he says. And he says, uh, th- there's a rule, he, he applies a, uh, an interesting rule from a totally different context of halacha, when the Gemara talks about making identification based on simon, a person, a, person a person is missing, presumed dead, we find a body, we're trying to ID the body, can't recognize the face, so the Gemara talks about simanim. If you find various simanim, like he's very tall, he's very short, he has a scar, these types of things, so there are different levels of simon. Certain types of simon are called simon mufak. They're, they're unique, or they're very rare, so they're considered... Uh, the, the odds of coincidence is very low. That's called a very reliable simon, simon mufak. Certain lesser simonim like he's tall. A lot of people are tall. He has, uh, you know, he has uh, a reddish pallor, to, a reddish color to his face. A lot of people have reddish color to their face. Those are called simonim she'enam mufakim, and they're not reliable for, for Aguna. However, if you have a group of them, a group of them together can join and become simon mufak, because, again, the... When you have enough independent variables uh, and, and they're all com- they all combine in a certain way, that, prov- that, that becomes a simon mufak. So you see we combine simonim. So here also he says, even if all these differences individually, the slightly bigger size, the longer neck, the hump on the beak, even if individually the, none of those things are necessarily uh, species differentiators, but three of them together, he says, maybe is. He goes back and forth on this point. He says that when there, when there are three separate differences between old geese and new geese, he says, that is a pretty, uh, a pretty significant reason to say it's a new species, he says. So he goes on, he brings other arguments back and forth, and he says that, and he says that the, and he says that the, so it's really, had, had, this, had this come to him, originally he says we'd have pretty, serious arguments to say that the new geese should be oster, because they, they're, they're, they're very different from the old geese, they're different in multiple ways, and therefore, and therefore he says that there, there, there's a pretty strong case to be made that without a Masara we should not be making. We don't have a reliable Masara on these, they're different from the old geese in a number of ways, and therefore we should be, we would have to be machber. There is, he says, one very solid argument to be made, and that is the, the one method we haven't discussed so far, that is the hybridization principle. To use Dr. Zivotovsky's language, if, they, if the old geese uh, freely mate with the new geese, and they, uh, that itself is, is a simon that the new geese are tar also. Because the Ravim says, the Gemara says, that, uh, that Tame and Tar don't, uh, don't crossbreed. And not entirely clear whether that applies to birds or just animals, but Tziv assumes, other acronym assume, it applies to, some acronym assume it applies to birds as well. Therefore, he says that this would seem to be, according to the classic sources, a pretty reliable basis for leniency, that they mate, that they crossbreed with, uh, with each other. However, he says, 
also not such a great proof, he says, because I have at least one counterexample, he says. There is some kind of wild goose, he says, that we consider non-kosher. Again, I don't know exactly what species he's talking about, but there's some kind of... Jews used to eat geese all the time. In the time of the Rishonim and the Achronim, there are tons and tons of chuvos and halachas that they deal with geese all the time. But he says there was a certain kind of wild geese, baravas habar, we consider it non-kosher, he says. Even though it, it mates with, uh, with domestic geese, he says. So clearly we don't rely on, uh, we don't rely on the crossbreeding test. It's not 100% reliable, he says. However, there is an improved version of the crossbreeding test, he says, if they'll crossbreed even when they have other options, even when they have members of their specific species available, they'll still freely crossbreed. They just really don't care. They're, they're, it's, it's equal to them, one and the other. Maybe that test is, is reliable. I guess his wild geese didn't do that as much, he said. But uh, I'll call upon him, he said, if, if, we, uh, if, we ha- if we meet this standard, if they'll freely crossbreed even when members of their own narrower species are available, then perhaps that is a good test, he says. So he goes back and forth. He doesn't have an entirely, uh, entirely solid conclusion, he says. But had this is all, had this question come up originally when you had these new geese and you asked me, should we eat them? I would have said, not so fast. They have substantial differences between them and the old geese. We might call them geese. They look like geese in many ways, but they're not quite the same as the old geese. The crossbreeding test itself is not 100% reliable. Therefore, had you come to me originally and said, we just got a new, uh, new geese, have just come to town, can we eat them? The answer would have been, I'm not convinced. However, he says, this is all, again, had the Shiloh come originally. Ivra, kolzem ha This question come to me originally, without any existing minhag or mesora, that's what I would have said. However, he says, now the minhag has been to eat them. We've been eating these, these geese for a while, he says, for some years, I think. And the stomach, he says, it was probably al piyaras chacham, I'm going to give the Jewish people the benefit of the doubt that if they ate these geese, they probably had some rabbi who uh, allowed it, he says. He thought it was a valid form of goose. He thought it was a form of kosher goose. And now they have a chazaka lehatera. So now, he says, now that this has become established as a kosher bird, we should not now overturn the Masorah. We should not now go and say, no, it's really non-kosher. This would be motzi laz. We've discussed the idea of motzi laz in the past to cast aspersions on an established Jewish practice is very problematic. They've been eating these, these geese for a while, chas v'shalom, he says. He gives another example. He says, there's a case in the Gemara. It's a, it's a difficult Gemara. There are a number of different ways to learn these sugyas in Chulun, but the Gemara talks about a case. There was a certain bird that said they used to eat it. Apparently they used to eat it until they, they, they saw that it was Dares. They caught it being Dares. They said, oh, if it's Dares, if it has that carnivorous habit of being Dares, it must not be a kosher bird. Apparently they ate it, he says. How did they eat it? They probably didn't have a Masorah, because it turned out it was wrong. It was not a kosher bird. So if we assume that Masorahs are reliable, we have to assume they didn't have a Masorah, he says. But they thought it was kosher. So once, uh, once they got into the habit of eating it, they were eating it. And they would have kept on eating it until they found that it was Doris. So a very interesting idea. He's, so the Nitziv is saying, kind of directly in opposition to Rav Shlomo Kluger, that even if we don't have any solid basis for, for relying on it, and even if we don't claim that we have an authentic Masorah, we don't claim that we have Masara that goes back to the Ge'onim or the Gemara. In Roshul Kluger's case, it was a New World bird. In the Natsiv's case, he says, we're talking about a, a bird that uh, we, we don't know of any place that Jews used to eat them. They were imported here. We have no idea whether the, wherever they came from, any Jews used to eat them. Jews started eating them here. That doesn't go back more than a, more than a few years. 
So it's not a real Masara, he said. It's not, a, it's not the kind of Masara that goes back, that, that the Shulchan Aruch talks about, a Masara that goes back indefinitely. We don't have a real Masara, he says. Nevertheless, once the, the Minog became in a specific place to eat birds, again, and it was Donald P. Aras Chacham, I don't know what he would say about America, where there was less of a, uh, less, of a less religious organization, but at least he says in, uh, in, in, in a solidly religious place in Europe, once the Minog developed to eat a bird for, a, for some amount of time, he says... We, we, it is difficult to overturn that minog. We can't be mozi laz on the, even if we have no solid reason. We, it doesn't pass the test of simonim necessarily. We don't, we, don't have, we, don't, we don't have proof against it. We don't have proof for it. We don't have solid proof in favor of it. We don't have a reliable Masara that goes back uh, to the distant past. We know that, uh, that, that these birds are relatively new. Nevertheless, once we start eating these birds, he says, that uh, that itself becomes a Masara that is uh, that is self justice maybe not self justifying but self uh, that itself gets weight in halacha. We don't overturn this Masara without some type of proof to the contrary. He says, and Teda he says as proof similar to similar to, to, to Rav Nathanson he says I'll bring you a proof he says Forget, let's let's move away from the geese for a minute he says Ofainduk turkey he says the Indian bird we eat it he says. There were, there were indeed many who objected to it. He doesn't say who these Ma'arim were, but he claims that there were many who objected when they first brought it from India. Turkey did not actually come from India, but many people believe that it did. But what, he says when they first imported Turkey, there was a great controversy about it, he said. And they didn't have a Masara. Obviously there was no Masara from America, he says. So, so again, everyone agrees that there was no ancient Masara. Not everyone, but a number of Akronim agree that there, were, that there was no Masara on Turkey. Some people actually claim that there was, but that's... Uh, a somewhat uh, problematic claim. But the Nitziv, like Rav Shalom Kluger, like Rav Nathanson, these three Akronim all agree that there was no Masara on Turkey. Rav Nathanson says, still it's Mutter, doesn't fully, we didn't discuss his position exactly why, but he says clearly you, should, you can't be so rigid about a Masara. Rav Shalom Kluger just says, New World birds are Osir because they don't have a Masara. The Nitziv says, obviously it's Mutter, the Minigas said it's Mutter. He says, it's true, there were those who were objected at the time. Od Hayom, in 1884, he says, there were still those who are machmer and don't eat turkey. There are still some today who don't eat turkey, he says. However, the general minog is, we do eat turkey, he says. Ain't pot pet, just like today, he says. The cashier's agency certify it. Do you ask a Rav Ashala, can I eat turkey? The general consensus is yes, he says. Why? There's obviously no genuine misora. We don't, we don't have any conviction that turkey's kosher based on the objective, objective methods for determining kashras. The only reason is, he says, That's the way it is. Turkey became muksuk that it's mutter. We don't have a proof to the contrary. So the Masara itself is all, the, the pseudo Masara at this point is all we have to go on. And the same thing, he says, applies to these large geese, he says. The same thing applies to these large geese. Even if we don't have a single valid reason to permit them, they're not the same as the old geese. But once we have a Masara, even if it's of recent. Even if it's of recent origin, you can be makel. However, he says, it's, uh, he, he admits that this is not, uh, not exactly a slam dunk, so he tells his correspondent, you can you know, bring my arguments to the attention of other Gidole Hadar, and if they agree, if they agree that it's mutter, I'll join them as well. So he's saying that it's not, uh, not he doesn't think this is black and white, he makes that pretty clear, but he said his position is, kind of elaborating on Rav Nathanson's position. Also, on the one hand, we have no solid basis for allowing certain birds, like turkey. 
they, we, we, we can't verify them based on Simanim. We don't have a genuine Misara that goes back uh, to time immemorial. We don't have anything like that. On the other hand, we do have a, a, a recent Misara that Jews have been eating them. And even if, the, and, and even if that's not what the Shulchan Aruch meant by Misara, once the Misara has developed, he says, we don't overturn it unless we have, unless we have arguments to the contrary. So here also he says, even though we know this Misara didn't go back we know this Masera didn't go back to uh, indefinitely. In America, there was no Masera. Nevertheless, once a Masera has developed in Europe and taken root, even if it's of relatively recent years, and we're not quite sure how that Masera got started, nevertheless, he says, we rely on that Masera, and we eat turkey. And that's the bottom line. As we said, we eat turkey today. Most people eat turkey today. There are a whole variety of reasons why. None of the reasons is entirely compelling. But this is one of the main arguments given, this type of argument, that a Masora has developed. We don't have, uh, we don't have evidence to the contrary, even though, uh, even though you know, the classic Masora seems to have been, like, like Rav Nathan, like Rav Shlomo Kluger said, a Masora that goes back uh, quite a while. But uh, you can have a recent Masora as well. Once a Masora has developed, even if it developed uh, under somewhat uh, ambiguous or uncertain conditions, once it has become a Masora, we apply rules like we don't want to be motilaz, and we just give the ones who started the benefit of the doubt that they had some basis for it. And that's, that's one, of the, one of the various reasons Post can give for why we eat turkey today, despite the fact that on paper it's not entirely clear why it should be considered kosher. Thank you all for listening, and have, I guess, in advance a uh, happy Thanksgiving for those who celebrate it, and uh, enjoy turkey for those who will be eating it in the near future. Thank you. I just want a quick aside. There may not have been on the Mayflower, but there were Jews who sailed with Columbus. Ah, so there were Jews. There were Jews all the way back then, right? I don't know if they formed any kind of settlement back then, but they may have visited the New World. No, I mean, but they may have brought things back, like Turkey. Oh, right. Okay, right. They, they, they're, 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 right. Turkeys. Turkeys apparently came pretty early on. Uh, as I think Rabbi Zivotovsky notes, Shakespeare mentions them already. So they, they were apparently. Uh, they were apparently. By the by, the 60, by the mid 16th century, they they were already uh, quite well known in in Europe. So yes, and there may have been Jews involved in those early voyages. So yes, thank you. Because apparently Columbus was supposed to sail later, but he ended up leaving on the day of the Spanish expulsion because there were Jews on the ship who had to leave early. Right. Thank you. Yeah, I've heard I've heard various accounts of uh, of Columbus's voyage and its and its connection to the Spanish expulsion. I I, I never really looked into it enough to separate out the. The, the facts and the legend, but yes, I, I, I have heard such stories also, so thank you, yes.